saying to the community this morning about the making resolves or resolutions and commitments and you know it's kind of part of big part of our practice or learning how to cultivate them in a the right way you know, there's because it's it's actually there's some subtlety in it you know? so you make a you know you, as you make a, an intention or resolve to so, you know, looking at where you're, where you're stuck or where you're getting habitual, where you're getting stale, where you're getting compulsive. You know? You, okay, well, let's determine to do that or to not do that, you know? And so this is a way you start to see, you get a feeling for where uh, you're, you're kind of blind or compulsive or swept away or resistant to things. You think, hey, let's check that out. And uh, then you're making some kind of resolution to, to stop that or to look at that more clearly. And then you're looking at the results of it. You know. So it gives you some sense of, uh, of uh, establishing a foundation, getting a sense of direction, also depth, because you start to go through the, the, the surface currents of the mind, its thoughts and feelings and opinions, to the basic kind of inclinations of it, like the inclination towards sense pleasures. And you sort of put a, put a block on it. Say, no, let's see what happens when you don't do that. When you give up music or smoking or limit your food intake. or Here, of course, it's, a, it's pretty standard, you know. Uh, You know, like not eating afternoon, you get so used to it that in fact it's hardly a commitment anymore. It's just ordinary. So then you, you know, sometimes you actually kind of up, you kind of upgrade it a little bit, like to only eating once a day. See what that does. So you can check these things, and you, then you also you start to look into, you know, the attitudes one has. You know, so so you can see sometimes you get compulsive about how little you need, or or, or get attitudes of of uh, what's called vibhava, which is not not wanting to be with things, not wanting to be moved or touched or experience anything, or getting or the opposite, getting caught up with things. You look at your attitudes. So you don't want to do this. You don't want to be part of that. You don't want to get involved with this. You want to just be left alone, quiet, silent, so forth. Or you really want to get in on everything. You want to have an opinion, get yourself into something, smart, you know, get involved with everything. And you see these kind of tendencies we have. And you look at what that's about. We want to get involved with everything because we feel we'll let, be left out or missing out or sidelined or dismissed or, you know, somehow we feel we've made small or insignificant. 
And then there's the kind of the attitudes we sometimes get about wanting to just get out of it all because I want to be I want to be small and insignificant. <laughs> I want to be left alone, you know. <laughs> See these kind of underlying currents that we we can get into, you know, in our lives, and uh, they're very fundamental because to a certain extent that's that's kind of what we steer by. Um, you know, and then and not necessarily unskillful, but when they get compulsive. Yeah. So there's a skillful sense of wanting to get involved with something because it brings up skillful mind states. Uh, or there's a there's a skillful sense of wanting to really get out of something or not be involved with something because it brings up skillful mind states. And the mind states, uh, the Buddha, when he was contemplating the way his mind worked, he said there were three particular little thoughts he had, you know, or, or three checkpoints. This is for my welfare. This is for the welfare of other people or others. And it leads to Nibbana. It leads to letting go. It leads to release. It leads to non-compulsiveness. It leads to the minds becoming less feverish or gripped or fixed. And finally, towards peace, towards ceasing of this kind of inner inner compulsiveness, you know, however you want to define nibbana. You know, so it, to my welfare makes me feel you know brings up skillful states in myself. I feel respect for myself. I feel a sense of uh, you know like kindness and strength in myself or calm in myself. It leads to other people's welfare, and it leads to nibbana. If, you, if, it, if all these three come in. Then you can recognise that's a good, that's as good as you can get it, really. <laughs> but if it's only for my welfare and nobody else's, well, you'd want to check that one out. Or if you, th- or you, or if an idea this is for everyone else's, but it's not for my own, you want to check that one out. And if it doesn't lead to nibbana, if it, it leads to becoming more and more engaged, more and more involved, more and more, uh, you know, you want keep wanting more and more of it. Uh, it doesn't lead to the ceasing, the quietening of the mind, but leads to the minds ongoing kind of compulsiveness or, or set or fixations, then you don't want to be with that, really. So it's this checklist, my welfare, others' welfare, and leads to Nibbana. And then you see, you operate any kind of resolve you make with that, with that theme in mind. So it's not a blind doggedness, do this no matter what, uh, and this is where the, the, it's skillful because you, particularly in, in uh, I guess, in any walk of life, but in religious life, you know, people can take up this incredible resolution, like standing on one leg for fourteen years, or um, you know, beating themselves with whips and stuff. Um, and yeah, does this do you any good? Does it do anybody else any good? Uh, does it lead to any release? Well, maybe it does for some people, but. Um, you know, you've got to keep checking it out, these things, because often you get this sense of fixation upon a practice. And it's one of the forms of things that we get fixated on. There are fundamentally four areas that Buddha talked about, the sense, sense world, we get fixated on that. Tasting, touching, seeing, more, more, more. Obsessed with it. We get fixated upon these particular, what they call these currents of views that's wanting to be in on everything, wanting to accumulate and get more and more. Uh, it's called bhava, build up your identity, 
become more and more of a person, more and more evolved, or the Vibhava get less and less evolved. So the, these these two things, sensuality and what's called becoming, and the third is uh, systems or standards and structure or systems and customs, techniques, things that ways we have of doing things. And the fourth is the sense of self or um, which is kind of subtle, you know. So when you're making resolves, you, you recognize that these are the kind of things that can come up that you want to work with, you know, these basic areas. And even making resolve itself, is when I was uh, um, not particularly resolve-minded, <laughs> Because to me, it always meant um, sort of being tied down to something meaningless. You know, I looked around and what, what did people find themselves committed to? Sort of like nine to five job in Vauxhall Motors, where I lived in Dunstable. So Vauxhall Motors, okay, great. That's what you do for your life. Wow. You know, and then that commitment to that um, seemed a bit pointless, really. I mean, yeah, but didn't seem to go very far. Uh, and then when I was at school, we used to have to, we had to wear a school uniform and we had a you know, uh, jacket with a school badge on it and then a little tie. Can you imagine me in a school tie? And a school cap, you know, a little cap on your head with a school badge on it. And then you had to wear these all the time. Yeah. And particularly if you're outside the school walking, you had to wear all this school uniform. And then if you saw a, a teacher coming along the road, you had to take your cap off like, to salute the teacher. And that was that was the thing. And that was you know, so. Those were like schools were like in those days. So naturally, you know, what's the point of doing this? Teacher didn't really wasn't interested. You weren't interested, but you had to do it. And it probably was a point, but. I didn't see it at the time. So, you know, then eventually with this sort of thing, you're trying to wriggle out of it the best you can. Like, you couldn't really completely flaunt it, but you, maybe you, you'd have your jacket on sort of scruffy, you know, with the buttons undone, or you have your tie on crooked, or you put your cap on backwards. <laughs> so you could be kind of complying with the letter of it, just about. And this is what, uh, you know, c- commitments and, and resolutions meant in that, in that sense, you know, get tied down to something pointless that just is boring. So that the uh, when I looked at uh, spirituality, it was always about freedom and space and release and openness and spontaneity, which is a nice idea. Um, but you know, when you follow that for a few years, and one day you wake up with a hangover and realise your life is just <laughs> following sensuality and uh, desires and impulses, you think, i better get my act together. So I read all these wonderful spiritual classics when I was living on a beach in Morocco. Uh, you know, kind of as a hippie, reading the Tao Te Ching and Bhagavad Gita and things like the Way of Zen. It's all about no no constraints, no, no you know, formlessness and uh, the way... The, the true way, you know, any way that is, can be named is not the true way, and that sounded really great. 
And then there's Krishnamurti saying, you know, any kind of system is tyranny, it's complete freedom of the mind. Well, that was great. But I didn't know what to do. You know? What, you know, you just sit there, you get these wonderful ideas rush through your head, and you feel something, like some tantalizing vision, but you don't actually have a, a practice to, to get there. So I went traveling and eventually ended up in Thailand and it sort of meditate. Here's a system of meditation. Do this, sit down there, stop moving around, sit down, focus on your breathing. Now I couldn't focus on my breathing at all. Well, maybe a few seconds before my mind span off. But I noticed within that alone there was some sense of, you know, there's an intention to, to witness something. You know, even though I wasn't doing it very well, at least there was an intention there to get there. So you started to notice, wow, immediately in that, there's this, there's this sense of witnessing or watching, and there's what you watch, you know. There's your sense of a, like mindfulness or something like that, witnessing, and then there's this stuff that you can look at, which is all crazy, my mind. Well, that's, wow. You know, so even just that sort of, you know, establishing that resolve, even when you don't, not very good at it, had some kind of resolve because it meant this is, you know, something here to be worked with. My my mind is 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 chaotic. I I got a feeling I need to to get it calmer or steadier, so you get some sense of direction from even just the, just checking in with yourself in a clear way, in a clear focused way. And then how do you do that? So I started to develop these, went to a monastery and the sense restraint, you know, it was very clear what you do or what you didn't do. And then trying to meditate, which I sat in this hut for three years on my own. Just no, very little contact with anybody. No routines, no work, just sitting there, walking up and down, sitting there, walking up and down. Um, and mind just run jumping over the wall all the time, just kind of clawing and going crazy, and just keep pegging away at it, you know, trying to place it, place it, place it, just keeping that sense of resolve. Um, and with that, the just the sense of keep, that you notice when it when it sometimes it worked, your mind actually did steady and stabilize for a while. And that was gratifying. Oh, it works, you know. You could do it. You could actually, first of all, it took like sit still for 15 minutes. That was like big day. I could do that. And I'd do it, sit still for 15 minutes and then do walking meditation 15 minutes then sit still for another 15 minutes and then walk it. That was an hour, you know. Wow, that was big breakthrough. I never sat still for 15 minutes before focusing on one thing. So there was something in there. But then even when it, you know, I started to develop things like sitting still for an hour. And even when the mind was crazy, there was a, some feeling of peacefulness in just knowing it was, it was that and that you had this sense of having a resolve. And the resolve became the centerpiece. Right? This, is, this is where I am, this is what I'm doing, this is the stuff. This is where I'm standing, and this is the weather. This is what hap- This is where I'm at, and this is just stuff that's visiting. You know, some sense of that—a kind of quality of of discernment arising around that. 
But I think with that, I, you know, started that she got the sense of of um, trying trying to get rid of all the stuff. You know, the, the what's called the rebarber, kind of eliminate it all. So it's always a it was always a fight. Sit there and try and stop thinking, stop fantasizing, stop, you know, remembering things. Just try and stop it. So it was always this fight and struggle going on. I thought this can't be right. You know didn't feel very good. And so it was useful for me living in a, a community because then you, you're actually, at some times you're trying to stop thinking, be quiet, make, and then sometimes you're actually trying to think. You know, People ask you questions and you're speaking, responding, so you, you can't really take a position of either of them as being you know, the ultimate thing because... Obviously, if you're having to act and, and work and serve people uh, and help the, the other uh, people in the monastery, stopping thinking is not a good idea. Uh, so you can't really take such a position on thinking or not thinking, but really on the, the ability to, to witness and to work with it. It's a sort of slightly subtler sense of not so much whether one was thinking or not, but whether one was embedded in it. And just that feeling that one could kind of step back and let the thoughts just move through and not contend and not get fascinated by it. There was a, a, a subtler sense of resolve that felt, this is for my welfare and uh, I'm getting a healthier relationship to the thinking mind, so... That affects how I speak and how much I, you know, put into anything. So it's, it leads to a more harmonious situation. And I'm starting to work with these compulsions, you know, fixations in mind. The technique itself became a kind of compulsion. Whereas I'd get worried, I'm really not just worried, but a kind of an un, uh, a real reflex of agitation if I couldn't do my meditation. You know, I was doing like, in this three-year session, I was doing, I don't know, 10, 12 hours of meditation a day. And if anything happened in the monastery that disturbed it, I'd start to get nervous, like I'm not doing enough of it. I didn't feel stable, I didn't feel secure. And it, it kind of indicated one of the, one of the ways uh, in which resolve goes wrong is that we have a fundamental inclination for for security or stability um, or at least I did you know, to know where I am to know what's going on what's happening to feel to feel steady to feel you know and that was starting to to affect the meditation I wanted the meditation as something to hold on to so I could do the system. I was all right because I was doing it. Even if I wasn't doing it very well, I was doing it. So that was good. You know? and if I wasn't doing it, I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. So that was bad. Hmm? <laughs> so you, you know, one began to see this sense of what the Buddha called the, the fetter of um, attachment to systems, systems and structures, the meditation system itself, uh, and the, the structure of that. So very occasionally, you know, they might say, well, we'll go out for a meal, for a dana. And I feel quite lost because, you know, not being able to do things super slowly 
and to keep focused on the breathing and have to put up with taste and touch and sound and people coming and going and feel quite lost. But it wasn't that the meditation was wrong or bad or it's not good to do that, but it starts to reveal this sense of the search for something to hold on to. And normally, of course, we hold on to uh, being able to do things the way we like to do them or do things where we feel uh, we're approved of or we're being independent or we're being our true self or something or the other. And then when these things get disturbed, when you can't run your act, when you can't do your thing, whatever your thing is, um, one starts to feel rocky. And that time my thing was doing this meditation technique. I noticed one time I was, in the early days of Chittas, one time I was sitting out on the lawn and it was uh, it was the summertime and it was, it was a nice peaceful day uh, and I was sitting there in the afternoon, there's nothing much going on for a change. Oh, just sit and meditate. Once I got the idea of sitting and meditating, I noticed these birds, the doves, were flapping their wings. Flap, flap, flap. You listen there. Sometimes you hear these wood pigeons flapping their wings. Oh dear, the wood pigeons are flapping their wings. and I'm trying to meditate. And then I'm sitting there, and then here, occasionally you see people coming past, you hear somebody going, Oh, Simon, I didn't see Simon the other day. People talking, agitated. I wasn't agitated before I was meditating. <laughs> I was sitting there quite peacefully, and then I started to get this idea I've got to meditate, and this agitation came in. I can't, I've got to do it, and I wasn't doing it right. And that was quite revealing, you know. How, was this really the way to peace of mind? You know, setting up a structure that you can operate at sometimes, and sometimes, you know, it, it isn't quite like that. So then, you know, one began to consider, well, what actually is this process of meditation about, apart, not just the technique, the whole inclination of it towards having a clear intention, towards being centered, towards finding a quality of calm, you know, not deliberately going out and listening to wood pigeons or running around, but just, mm hmm. And getting that sense of being able to fundamentally to let go of the sounds, the sights, and also the agitation, and also to let go of the silence as well. Yeah. Because it's essentially, you're, you know, the, with the practice, you're, first of all, you're establishing a sense of clear intention, and then some point where you, you feel, yes, you, can, you know what you're doing, you've got a reference point here, you can stay with it, you can practice resolution and determination with that, you know, focus your intentions on that, and then within you start to get the sense of the, the turbulence builds up. The turbulence of wanting to do something else or the turbulence of things that start to distract you and then you know, what's, what's going to lead to my peace to my welfare I'm going to start to find myself hostile to anybody who's moving around talking or going to shoot the wood pigeons because um, they're bothering me no that doesn't seem right where is the, the Nibbana element you know you get a kind of feeling for what the Nibbana element must be like you know, in that direction of not fixated on one thing, not fixated on another thing, but just a sense of 
the mind not impassioned, not clinging. So when I went to Amrawati, which was just started at 1984, I think, then Amrawati was really pretty crazy. Uh, Big big place, very unformed, trying to figure out how to make it work. You know, it was pretty formless. And we'd have we'd have meditation retreats there for the sangha, at a time when one felt one could really finally, you know, there's so many people, placing you could really finally settle down and stabilize. And then we'd have retreats in this the 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 shrine the what was the old the shrine room, in those days, which is in the retreat center, and it was always be these kind of what they call turn into the window wars. Because some people liked the windows open for fresh air, but other people didn't like the windows open because it was drafty. So somebody come in and open the window, you sit there and it's kind of click, 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 click. And somebody come in and close the window, click, clock. And then you sit there for a while and somebody come in and open the window, and it's click, clock, click, clock, click of the windows of the. (laughs) (laughs) Sit there listening to people. Every time there was a change of sitting, you know, somebody opened the window, somebody closed the window, somebody come in, it's too hot, too cold. You know, gee. And you could feel this kind of build up of, of uh, irritation. Uh, you see, because uh, you know, some people's view would be it's too drafty. Some people's view would be it's, it's, it's too stale. And my view would be leave it alone. And even that was just another view I was attached to, you know, just let it be the way it is, was my view. But even that's just the view, you know, if you've... So, I think, okay, what's the way out of this one? <laughs> you know, just hear the sound, mm-hmm. feel the slight change of temperature, hear another sound, temperature change again, moving around, and just not you know, that tendency to get seized by these phenomena, sounds, and interpret them as people. People doing stupid people, in fact, unlike me. It doesn't seem quite right somehow. And now that after a while you wanted to machine gun people, it didn't seem quite right. <laughs> being disturbed. As I took up a practice in the main courtyard of Amrawadi where people would drive in with their cars. And I think, I'll do my walking meditation right in the main courtyard where people drive in. So instead of going off into the field, I would do it right in the, the main area. So i walk up and down, a car would drive in, and somebody say, excuse me, is this so-so-so? And i say, yes, it's right over there. And I'd go back to my walking Walk up and down a bit, and somebody says, "Hello, Anjan, how are you doing?" Da, 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 da. Yeah, fine, right. Walk up and down a bit. Excuse me, Bunty, where do we put the food for the? It's over there. <laughs> somebody come in. What are you doing then? Yeah, fine. <laughs> Builder comes along. Says, "Where do we put the bricks, mate?" Oh, it's over there. <laughs> Just walking up and down, walking up and down. Thought, do it for an hour, and that sense of not—I wasn't doing walking meditation, but just. That moment when you get interrupted, 
And just, just let it just dissolve. Just let it let it go. Not in despair, but just it was the last moment. The last moment was that, and now it's this. Just let it go. And that that person moved away, and pick it up. Let it go. Pick it up. Just trying to get a bit more flexible around um, around a focus. So that one can maintain a focus without this sense of I've got to get this as I can hold myself together, you know, so as I can feel my mind steady. Uh, don't like that, you know. There are all kinds of ways in which this happens for us, isn't it? You know? Like when you uh, live in, in, in Sangha, then depending which where you are, and there can be all kinds of protocols around a particular monastery has this system about the way they receive the food or the way they do the chanting or the way they wear their robes. And you go to, you think, this is it, this is right, we're clear, this is the vinya, this is standard, it's good, impeccable, this, that, and the other. And you go to another place and they're doing it slightly different. And they think, yeah, this is right, this is clear. And there's, they, they have kind of protocols that you don't have there. Think, what do they bother to do this for? You know, some places where they won't boil water. You know, you, you can have hot water, but you can't can't boil water. What's the point of that? Crazy! What are you trying to prove? You know? but that becomes a central thing. Some places where they won't have mirrors because you might look in the mirror and kind of get infatuated with yourself. Yeah, okay, could happen. But you think, God, I'm infatuated with this. You must be joking. Or you could be looking at it, kind of looking at the pimples. Or those. So some people actually mirror with soap smeared all over it so you can't see yourself. You think, God, it's crazy people. But then you're in your own thing, you know, about making sure people offer things in the right way. You can get very particular about it. Is it right? Is it wrong? Yeah. Who's right? Who's wrong? You realize there's a lot of stuff goes on and on and right and wrong. And uh, is it actually doing me any good? To what extent does it do me good? It does me good because I'm attentive, I'm focused, I'm clear, I'm trying to do something that the community does, I'm living in harmony with people, I'm letting go of my opinions and views, it's good. When's it bad? When I fixate upon it, take it out of context, expect it somewhere else, and find it as a source of contention, then it's bad. So you start to see the usefulness of views and systems and structures as a means of purifying one's own mind, but not picking it up as, a, as something to then uh, disparage other people with, find fault with other people with. Yeah. And so these are things that we have to work through. And the Buddha said, this isn't just for monks and nuns, it's for everyone. So it's not just about particular points of, you know, monastic training. It's everyone. He said, this is a universal problem. Sometimes in religious senses it becomes most apparent because they're often over things that outside of that particular religion you, don't, you can't see any point in at all. Rajan Amaro, when he went to Egypt and he went to a Coptic 
Coptic monastery, Coptic Christianity. He went to one of these Coptic monasteries in Egypt. And the monks there were very clear to say, we are, we are not monophysites, we are meophysites. We are not monophysites, we are meophysites. That is, we, the, the, Jesus has these two natures, both as divine and human. Yeah? It's a bit of theology. The monophysites say that those are united. The meophysites know they're just unified, but not united. And this is, you know, to get it clear, we are not monophysites who believe it's united. We are meophysites who just believe it's unified. Yeah, it's probably, you know, there's obviously some, you know, imagine strong words have been said on that topic. And, you know, I think perhaps if one had been a little bit flippant, one might have said, well, you talk to Jesus every day, why don't you ask him? (laughs) But fortunately he didn't. (laughs) But then you look at the kind of uh, things that people get uh, stuck in, you know, around there. What he's going to do at five o'clock. What they could do on Friday night. What are they going to do at Christmas? You know? I hate Christmas because I've got to do all this goodwill stuff. You've got to do it though. It's not here for fun. It's, you know. Or the, the systems and structures, the one sets up one's nine to five day or the regular day. Uh, we imagine that we just kind of, you know, wake up, bump, and then you go through the day until whatever it is, the approved time, 10, 11, midnight, down, and then you get your six, seven, eight hours, and you're up again. And people operate like that. But it isn't actually the way a body operates. They notice that in, in this is just works for industrial countries where they want people to get out to work. But they find that in... in um, Non-industrial countries, people just have a nap when they feel tired and keep going when they're not. <laughs> so, <laughs> they might go down for two or three hours and get up, and it could be day, night, and go and do something, and um, go on until they're tired and have a nap. When I was walking in India, and I was, uh, people invite me into the house occasionally, and I accept this invitation to stay the night in the house and uh, there'd be a, like a hall for the men We'd be in, women would be in another hall room, there'd be five or six guys in this room and you just basically get a bit, bit of board to lie down on you lie there and, some, and the light never goes off there's lights on and people are just wandering in and out all night long listening to the radio, doing things and somebody lies down and has a nap for a while and they get up and there's no sense of everybody's going to sleep and people just happily, you know, they don't they don't do things like like uh, lights out. You just if you're asleep, you fall asleep. If you're sleepy, you fall asleep. Lights on or not. If you're not, keep going. You know? <laughs> and then you know when you're tired in the day, you just take a rest somewhere. And they just do that. You see people just crashed out under a tree or under a truck or something any time of day or night. Doesn't matter what's going on, and, and this is very destabilizing. Sometimes you go to other countries and you see the way they're operating; and it can be very confusing. 
they're not operating on these same parameters. So you start to see this, and you know, you can think they're stupid or they're primitive or they haven't got it together, but how your mind comes these reactions, fixations on things, and you're seeing this isn't doing me any good, and I'm not being very pleasant to other people, and then it's just making me more fixated. Why don't I just let go of it, you know? And it's, then you sort of start to see how, you know, the boundlessness of possibilities. That's the point. Is that instead of making our lives narrower and narrower and narrower, so we can only do this and we can only do that, and it's six o'clock, so I've got to do this, and I can't ever do that, and I can only do it this way and that way, and I've got to have these supports before I can survive, otherwise I won't be able just to learn to be more open and flexible. And you realize, wow, you can, you can manage a lot, actually. You know, when I was at the my monastery in Thailand and doing this intensive meditation thing, and um, again, the, the you know that was that was a system. You do this in intensive noting. You're breathing in, breathing out. But the the monastery itself wasn't especially quiet, and it had. Uh, Every now and then they'd have a dumber talk blasting over a loudspeaker. Uh, like annoyed with that. Annoyed with the sounds is, you know, interrupting me. I'm trying to meditate. You know, a bit arrogant really. It's their country and their monastery. <laughs> and they're putting me up for free and there I'm getting angry about them living their lives the way they want to do it. Because <laughs> I see how, 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 you don't even notice how arrogant the mind is at claiming territory, you know. You don't even notice it. It becomes so, you know, the unconscious reflex of, of saying things have got to be my way. You know? And then, But the real interesting point of that was when they had an um, 11-day uh, festival in the monastery, and it was to celebrate. They were making, they were creating a sema, an ordination area in the monastery, and for this they decided they'd ordain ninety-nine monks. Ninety-nine nines being a very nice number in Thai, the highest number. So they thought we'll ordain ninety-nine monks to celebrate. So they got ninety-nine men to become monks. It didn't matter if you were a monk for a day or a week or weren't just last. But they just the idea of getting some robes on these guys, ninety-nine of them would be extremely good fun and because uh, the, the <laughs> so in Thailand things have to be have a certain fun to them and so to make it even more fun they also had a couple of uh, uh, movie theatres brought in so there were all, all night movies playing and people were selling food and stuff in the monastery and then these people getting ordained and chanting going on it was just all day and all night and we had to go to the ordination ceremonies and they can only ordain Three monks at a time, that's, that's the limit. So you're 33 ordination ceremonies, you drag yourself on the floor again and go another one, and sit through this thing falling apart. And there was one, one monk who did every ordination. He was the chanting acharya. He was the chanter for the, every ordination. Nine, 33 of them. His voice, his, he was continually taking things to try and keep his throat going. Um, and these things went on day and night, just round the clock. You'd have a break for the meal, 
and it would just go on day and night. So you go kind of go back to your you know, your cootie, lie down, and then there'd be this continual raucous, you know, Western movies, cowboy movies playing, bang, bang, crash, 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 and then music playing, and then bang, somebody knocking on the door, and you might come off to the Northern Road Nation. So the idea of me and my peace and quiet and focusing on the breathing and breathing out. <laughs> and after a, uh, after a, few, you know, a day or so of this, it, it started to realise this thing is bigger than you, you know. Uh, why is this a problem, you know? And just, you know, it wasn't that I was particularly interested in all the other things, but just how to find that middle point between, you know, the meditation, the internal world, the external world, you know. And that you're not fixated on either. And it didn't mean being kind of vague. It meant a sense of really being attentive to how the mind wants to rush out or pull in. And feeling that, you know, or start to create ideas or opinions or complain. And just, oh, there it goes. And just see if you can... Just soften, release that. It was very peaceful. It was actually more peaceful just doing that than uh, having this tight focus. It was subtler. And it dealt more thoroughly, more radically with places I was holding on. The need for stability, the need to have my thing going. You know, or to get into some other thing instead. I'll give up meditating and start reading instead. No, no, that wasn't it. So, you know, begin to sort of see this, this incredible reflex, not a conscious decision at all, but a real reflex to have something to hold on to. And the idea of having nothing to hold on to sounds, you know, like, what's that? And uh, you know, because everything that we hold on to, in some way, begins to be a kind of a prop for our mind. We uh, we find ourselves defined by it. We're good at it, not so good at it. We believe in it. We reject it. We support it. We have opinions about it. We convince other people of it, or we apologize for it or something you know so there's all this everything that supports you actually becomes an obstruction in a way you know it's not and it takes you know it's not that we don't need a support but after a while everything that supports you starts to be something else you've got to keep going holding on to approving of tidying up convincing somebody else of holding against something that isn't the same way you know, you can't have two opinions at the same time, can you? <laughs> so whatever you take a stand on, it's going to be in some kind of conflict with something of another opinion or another. If you want quiet, then noise is going to be a problem. If you want, if you want noise and chat, silence is going to be a problem. So you can't have, you know, whatever you take a stand on, wherever you find yourself 
supported, that eventually becomes something that becomes a kind of, you see, it's an obstruction. Because it creates agitation. It creates a sense of, I've got to have this. It creates a sense of, is this as good as yours? Which is the best one? Which is the best religion? Which is the best meditation? Which is the best place? Which is the best system? Which is the best person? Which is the, you know, is it better than that? Is it not good enough? I don't feel mine is good enough as yours. Gee, you know, this kind of fretting. So, you know, what is it that needs the support? So sometimes we find ourselves looking at what we're holding on to or trying to find ourselves supported by. I mean, oh, I've got to give up that. I've got to put down that. I shouldn't have that. Or I try this one instead. But then start to look at what is it that needs support? Who is it that needs support? What is it that needs the support? Oh. Uncertainty needs support. It needs something. Um, fear needs something. Uh, desire needs something. Uh, the need for stimulation needs something. That's what needs the support. Those things. Yeah. And is it possible to release those? This is, you could say, our apparent self becomes coloured with these tendencies. Our, you know, our needs, our resistances, our fears, our worries uh, become, kind of shape me and form me. And then I want something there to support it. Something to get worked up about. Something to get excited about. Something to feel annoyed about. Something to feel certain about. And everything of that nature is fragile, dependent, passes, breaks up, becomes a problem. So how does one find the sense of (laughs) the stability that we need? Well, it's in that cultivation, through realizing, through going through this, rather uncomfortable but revealing process, subtler and subtler, to sense the unsupported. Now it sounds like unsupported must be falling down, but no, it's something that doesn't need support. And this is what the the Buddha was pointing to. He was one and one of his rather uh, cryptic Poems saying, saying, when I was trying to get across the floods, when I was striving to get across the floods, I started to sink. When I started to be supported, I found myself going down. When I gave up striving and being supported, I crossed over. Hmm. Of course, it's no small thing. So there is this process in which we start to try to find supports in 
well, what feels good right now, the best for me right now? And then how can I make that fit with other people, that it's okay for my welfare, for your welfare? We look at world, let's look at morality for a start. Obvious. Let's look at generosity. Yeah, that makes me feel good. Let's look at kindness. Yeah, that makes me feel good. Let's look at tolerance. Yeah, that's good for me, good for you. You know, these kinds of things. Look at sharing. Oh, yeah, that's good. Then you start to establish something like that. And then within that, you can see, you know, one's uh, opinions about people. And let's, you know, start to develop a little more compassion and forgiveness and rejoicing and seeing the different sides of things. And you can feel negative about yourself. You know? So you start to sort of, as you come into a resolve, you begin to see that the, the, there's some sense of stability and there's some remaining source of agitation. Yeah. So you start with the things you can really trust and you see that brings you some stability, some sense of, this is, I'm okay with this, I'm okay with you. And then there's something left that's still agitated or tense. And you start to work with that. You know, let's meditate. Okay. Yeah, this is good. This is good. This is stable. But then I have a conflict when I can't meditate. Ah, that's, there's the agitation, isn't it? There's the, there's the compulsion. There's the affliction. So can I have something that can, you know, embrace meditation and, and non-meditation as such? You know, go beyond, have a technique, but also go move beyond that. And then you start to see you know, widening it. So there's a sense of gradually widening and, and becoming more subtle. Yeah. But, you know, you really you know, even consider it whatever as this most, one of the most chilling lines in the Buddhist teaching, whatever is mine whatever I'm supported by, whatever I hold on to, whatever is mine, beloved, pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Yeah. And then you, you, you know, your health, your, 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 your vigor, your friends, places, uh, intellectual clarity, Whatever you take a stand on is fragile. So therefore, really to cultivate, to look at these places where we have not completed that, we're still finding conflict with others, fixation, and why do I need this? Why do I need to hold on here? What is that? What is it that needs to hold on here? Do I really want to be that? Do I need to be that? That fearfulness, that insecurity, that righteousness, that whatever it is. So we we move on, so like an emptying of definition to the unsupported. This is the my sense, my opinion, the the direction towards the supreme. Uh, peace and stability that the Buddha pointed to of Nibbana. So, first for your reflection.